The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and a handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Okay, well, when Robert Mugabe came to power, people took to the streets. After years of white colonial rule, the African country of Rhodesia finally gained independence in the year 1980, being renamed as Zimbabwe. And Mugabe had been a key leader in that struggle for independence. And once he was elected as their first prime minister, a real sense of change and hope filled people's hearts. Mugabe was seen as a freedom fighter. He was compared to Nelson Mandela. He was even nominated for a peace prize for racial reconciliation. And even now, there are still many who see him primarily as a hero who liberated the country from oppressors. However, once his rule began, things took a darker turn. Mugabe soon went after his political rivals within Zimbabwe. He sacked a man called Joshua Nkobo, a fellow liberator who was in his cabinet, and he sent an army to Nkobo's home county in Zimbabwe, where they killed 20,000 civilians. Gradually, Zimbabwe became a one-party state. Mugabe went after white farmers, terrorizing them and driving them from their estates and seizing their land. But this action aided in crashing an already weakened economy. Unemployment went up 80% in the country, and there were severe food shortages. In a country that was once known as the breadbasket of Africa, 
there were queues of people outside grocery shops trying to get the most basic of food items. Mugabe continued to persecute those of his own people who supported his political rivals. In 2005, he bulldozed the homes of those living in slums. A UN report suggested that as many as 700,000 people were made homeless. In the end, Mugabe was ousted from power by the military in 2017. Once again, people took to the streets, not in support of him this time, but in jubilation at the fact that he was no longer in power. Now, Mugabe has since died. A ruler who once carried all the hopes and dreams of his people, who was democratically elected, but who in the end caused widespread decline and destruction in his country. A hero who became a tyrant. And it goes to show some rulers may promise real hope and yet fail profoundly. Now, this isn't only true in the political world. We each have our own personal rulers, too. It's said that human beings are born worshippers, and that means for all of us, whether we're religious or not, there are things that we set our hopes on, our ambitions on, our affections on. And for each of us, amongst that whole mix of things that we look to, there are some things that rise above the others that take central importance whether that's expressing our creativity, or gaining financial security, or seeing our children succeed. Each of us have things that drive us, and therefore control us. To put it another way, each of us has a king. The key question then is which king are you following? And can this king deliver on its promises? Now, today's passage is an important one because it shows us that the way we choose our kings naturally is wrong-headed from the start. And if we want the right king, we're going to have to go against our natural inclinations. And yet we'll see that God has the right king for us, one that can deliver where others fail. So three things we'll see today. God's unlikely king, God's anointed king, and God's beautiful king. God's unlikely king. So, as you'll see by the slide, we are in a a series called The Life of David. It's the second in the series, and um, the keen-eyed amongst you will notice that from last week's reading, we're kind of 15 chapters further along in the story. (laughs) So, let me give a brief summary of the action so far. So, last week we met Hannah, who is a woman struggling with infertility and the shame socially that that carried. Uh, She was crying out to God with many tears, and the Lord was kind and gave her a son, Samuel. And as an act of gratitude, Hannah chooses to dedicate her son, Samuel, to the Lord. And what that means is, after weaning him as a baby, she takes him to the tabernacle, where he will grow up in service to God. Now, the tabernacle, which would later be built as a temple and known as the house of the Lord, it was the center of Israelite religious life. And as Samuel grows up there, it becomes clear to everyone that he is quite gifted. God chooses to speak to him in a unique way, and Samuel rises to prominence in the culture quickly. In a time of disobedience to God, Samuel is obedient. In a time of much confusion, Samuel is wise. 
and the whole nation comes to see him as an authority figure. And Samuel eventually leads the nation as a prophet and as a judge. Now, eventually, Samuel gets old, and the people of Israel come to him, and they say this, look, you're going to die soon, Samuel, so give us a king. Give us a king like all the other nations have. We want a king. Now, kings aren't necessarily a bad thing, but we're told, interestingly, that this desire for a king displeased Samuel, and it displeased God. See, the truth is, it is God who should be the king of Israel. And Israel were chosen as God's people to be distinct from the other nations. And yet the reason they want a king is so that they can be like the other nations. And so it causes Samuel and the Lord to grieve. And the Lord says to Samuel in the end, don't grieve, Samuel. They've not rejected you. They've rejected me. But do what they say. They want a king. Give them a king. And so the Lord points Samuel to a young man called Saul. Now Saul looks the part. He's described as handsome. He's very tall. He's an impressive figure. He's the sort of person that Hugo Boss would get um, in their fragrance adverts. Saul is appointed king. And his reign starts well. He leads Israel in battle against the enemies. He saves Israelite towns that have been attacked. It's a strong start, and he's a hero. But over time, Saul reveals himself to be a compromised leader. On a couple of significant occasions, he disobeys the commands of God quite clearly, and it becomes obvious that he is not the ruler that the people need. And Samuel tells Saul this. He says, because of what you've done, your kingdom is doomed. And the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and he will be king. And then just before we start our passage, you look down, just previously at the end of, just right at the end of chapter 15, we're told that Samuel is grieving over what Saul has become. And so is the Lord. So let's pick up our story in chapter 16, where God tells Samuel to basically pick himself up, dust himself off, stop grieving, and go find the new king. The Lord says, verse 1, I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have chosen one of his sons to be king. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, an alternate translation of that is, I have provided for myself a king. Now, that's quite interesting. Saul was a king chosen for the people, yet this is going to be a king who is chosen for the Lord. This new king will be God's choice. And the danger of this mission is kind of picked up in the next verse. What Samuel has been commanded to do is, could basically be construed as treason. Saul is still king. He says, you know, if, if Saul hears of this, he'll kill me. So God tells him to take a heifer and make a sacrifice, and then it's kind of less obvious. So Samuel is sent to this town, Bethlehem, and to the house of Jesse. Now, note, Samuel doesn't know which son of Jesse will be king? He doesn't know yet. The Lord will show him. So he sets off and he goes to Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem is quite a kind of small, modest town. It's more Bury or Bolton rather than Manchester city centre. No offence to Bury or Bolton. I studied in Bury. I love it very much. 
And in verse 4, Bethlehem's elders are slightly worried that the spiritual leader of the entire nation is coming up to their gates. But Samuel has come in peace, so he organizes the sacrifice and he brings Jesse and his sons with him. So the big question at this point that we're all thinking, and every reader should be thinking, is which son is going to be the new king? And as we read, it becomes clear that God's choice is not how we would choose. So much so, interestingly enough, even Samuel can't work out who the king is, which is very unusual. Throughout the Bible, Samuel is this guy who is very much portrayed as being very savvy, and he knows what the Lord's will is, but not here. He hasn't got a clue here. So first of all, verse 6, he sees Eliab, and he kind of sees Eliab and he looks him up and down, and he's like, yep, yep, this guy's, this guy's the one, I think, because he's very tall. He looks the part. Verse 7, we see that he has height. So like Saul, he has presence to him. He's an imposing figure, the sort of guy you want as a king. He's odds on for the job. But what the Lord says to Samuel in verse 7 is crucial. Look down. Do not consider his appearance or his height. I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, God does not choose like we do. Now, we care a lot about outward appearances. What seems most impressive or powerful or pleasing at first glance. It affects so much in our lives from who we date to how we perceive people of other ethnicities but God looks deeper. So Samuel realizes Eliab isn't the one, and as each of the rest of Jesse's sons are kind of paraded in front of him, he knows it's not any of them. You can kind of imagine, because Eliab's first, you imagine he's the tallest, so they might have put him up in high order, and Samuel is in turn sort of dismissing each one of them. He's like, no, 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 no. It's... It's not any of them. So much so that Samuel asks, well, are there any sons left? It's a bit awkward. Everyone's been shown. And this is where we see God's unlikely choice as king. Jesse replies, well, there is the youngest, and he's out with the sheep. And it's here that we're introduced to David now. Isn't that really interesting? Jesse hadn't even bothered to get David. He was dismissed out of hand as an option. And we see why. Verse 11, he's the youngest. Now, in the original Hebrew language, the word young is also the word small. So the writer shows a clear contrast. Eliab and Saul are tall. They're the tallest ones. They look kingly. David is the smallest one. And so he's unimpressive. And yet... David is God's choice. Despite appearances, there is something more to him that God can see, even if it's not obvious from the outside. At the heart level, there's more substance to David. And as he comes to power, he will show himself as more humble than Saul and more godly. David is God's unlikely king. Now, as we saw earlier, we all choose a king. We all have someone or something that sits on the throne of our hearts. And naturally, we tend to choose by appearances that which seems most impressive or pleasing. 
Now, for some of us here, that might be the middle-class dream. You know what I mean by the middle-class dream, don't you? A suburban home with a big garden and a leafy area and a good catchment area for a decent school. If you're older, this dream shows itself as the idea of a comfortable retirement. After all, with all those years of hard work, you've earned it, haven't you? Now, when this is your king, you'll be tempted not to sacrifice your comfort for the gospel or be willing to live in a less desirable area for the sake of your church community. Well, that's, that's one king. Students, you may be starting this year with a desire for status that's on the throne of your heart. To show yourself as competent, on a par with your peers, if not a little bit better. To gain the approval of your friends or even your parents. This too will inhibit your sacrifice for the gospel. Because achievement is everything. And anything that threatens it must be dismissed. The king in your hearts may be the search for an attractive spouse. You may be so focused on outward appearances that you actually overlook godly people. You may be controlled more by what the culture says or even what pornography says than what God says. And whether you're in a relationship or not, you can view your relationship more about your self-esteem than the other person. Because having someone who looks good or is impressive makes you look good. What's on the throne of your heart? Have you chosen an Eliab? Friend, God has a better choice of a king for you. And his name is Jesus. Now, King David is long gone. But the Bible speaks of a descendant who would be king not just of Israel, but of the whole world. Now, like, like David, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Like David, he would also be described as a shepherd, the great shepherd, in fact. And like David, by the world's standards, Jesus is unlikely. Born poor, lived largely homeless, died in shame. He called his followers to deny themselves and to frankly make peace with the fact that living as a Christian means you'll probably face hostility for it. This is the way of Jesus. It's not impressive. It's not impressive. And yet it is Jesus who is God's king, an unlikely king. And yet he is the one that God has chosen for us. God's unlikely king. Secondly, God's anointed king. So, back to the story. David is God's choice. But how do we know that David is even capable of being a decent king? Yeah, I mean, he's not from the corridors of power, right? He's the youngest of the family. He's from some backwater town in the middle of nowhere. He spends most of his time hanging out with sheep. How do we know that he's got what it takes? Okay? I mean, even his own dad didn't think he had a chance. What, why should we? And the answer is that he is anointed. He's anointed. Now, in the Bible, to be anointed was a ceremony where a key person was set apart for an important task. So priests were anointed for their service in the tabernacle, and kings were also anointed. So it was a visual symbol where oil is poured on the head. So in the Bible, kings didn't have crowns put on them. They were anointed. And here, David's anointing confirms that he is God's man for the job. 
Now, the anointing was a symbol of a greater reality, and we see that, look down with me, in verse 16. As soon as David is anointed with oil, it says, the Holy Spirit came powerfully upon David. So once he is anointed with oil, he is anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. He's a person. And one of his key jobs is to empower people for God's service. So in the Old Testament, he does this at various points with different leaders. The Spirit comes upon people to equip them for particular tasks, to rule wisely, to defeat a particular enemy on the battlefield. In the power of the Spirit, a ruler could unite his people or defeat an enemy. And so this is how we know that David will be the leader that the nation needs. God has anointed him with his Holy Spirit. He has what he needs to do the job. And for David, that will mean eventually ruling Israel pretty well, being a wise spiritual leader and defeating Israel's enemies. Now, the same question of David could be asked of Jesus, isn't it? Given Jesus is quite an unlikely king and viewed as unlikely and unimpressive by most of our world, how do we know that he's worth following? Well, Jesus is the anointed one with a capital A. See, David was the greatest king in the Old Testament, but he was flawed. And his son perpetuated some of those flaws, and after that, the kingdom fell apart. People didn't worship God. Society became unjust. The rich and the powerful exploited the poor and the vulnerable. And during this time, there was a hope amongst faithful Israelites that there would be a greater king to come. One who would rule the whole world, not just Israel. Another anointed one. In Hebrew, Messiah. Or in Greek, Christ. Now when Jesus started his ministry, there's a dramatic scene where he's in a synagogue and he gets up to read from one of the Old Old Testament passages, the prophet of Isaiah. And he reads the words and he says that these are about me. And he says these words. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When Jesus came to earth in his human nature, he was anointed by the spirit and You may not have noticed this before, but if you read the New Testament, there is constant reference to the anointing of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit helps Jesus in his ministry. The Spirit says, um, the Scripture says that in the power of the Spirit, he was anointed at his baptism. In the power of the Spirit, he performed his miracles. In the power of the Spirit, he was directed through his temptations. In the power of the Spirit, he obeyed his Father, even to the cross. And it was the power of the Spirit that raised him from the dead and declared him to be the son of God. Jesus was anointed with the spirit not to defeat his enemies, but to die for his enemies. More than achieve political union for Israel, he would be the savior of the whole world, proclaiming good news and freedom to those who are marred by sin. And as the anointed one, He accomplished all he came to do and secured salvation for all who trust in him. Now listen, the truth is, only Jesus is the anointed king. 
All of the kings are just not up to the task, including the ones that look impressive from the outside. We mentioned some of the things that we let rulers earlier, didn't we? Achievement status, the comfort of a nice home in a, in a leafy neighborhood. All these sorts of things may rule our hearts, but they are not anointed, so they cannot bear the weight of our expectation. What's going to happen to you when you work so hard um, to gain your success in your achievements, only to realize that, frankly, you're not that good? What's going to happen to you if you put all your chips in on a relationship fulfilling you and your partner lets you down or embarrasses you? What's going to happen when you work hard to get your kids into that really good school, only, them, only for them to get bullied anyway, or not to perform as you'd hoped? What's going to happen if we hit a recession in this country and that middle-class bubble bursts, our comfort compromised? What's going to happen? Oh, and get this, even if some of these things don't happen, should you be one of those rare people who manages to attain your lofty visions and dreams, it's actually quite insecure at the top. You know, in the days, in the days before Beyonce, uh, the queen of pop was Madonna. Now, she is the best-selling female recording art artist of all time. She has sold more than 300 million records worldwide. But beneath all her success is crippling anxiety. She once wrote that she is in a constant battle to fight inadequacy. She says she pushes past one spell and she finds that she's a special person. But then she gets to another stage and she feels mediocre. And this fear of being mediocre is what pushes her in her life. She says this, listen to this. Even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. You see, these other things, if we let them rule our hearts, they are always going to be fragile. And even if we gain our desires, they will leave us insecure or unfulfilled. There is no rest with any of these other kings. That's because they're not anointed. They can't deliver what they promise. Only Jesus can say, it is finished. Empowered by the Spirit, he fully accomplished our salvation. He has paid for our sin with his own blood. He's brought us into his family, and he's given us a rock-solid identity that isn't dependent on our performance or our achievements. And it is done and settled so we can enjoy it. We don't need to endlessly keep struggling like Madonna. Jesus is our anointed king. Our anointed king. Finally then, God's beautiful king. Okay, I've got a puzzle for you. You ready? What's the deal with the description of David in verse 12? Look with me. How is he described? He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Now, is it just me, right? Or is this a bit of a weird addition to a passage that seems to be all about how appearances are deceptive, <laughs> right? It seems to undermine the whole point, doesn't it? 
So Samuel was going to choose Eliab because he's tall. And God says, no, no, no. Man looks at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. David's my guy. Oh, and by the way, he's really good looking. <laughs> Have you seen him? It's weird, isn't it? You might expect that David was hideous with a face only a mother could love. And that would seem to make the point better, wouldn't it? You know, to really show that it's what's inside that counts. But the passage goes out of its way to emphasize how handsome he is. What is that about? Now, here's a rule in reading biblical narrative, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, okay? Pay attention to the details. Now, this is the word of God. We believe it's inspired. And so we believe every word is inspired. But also, the biblical authors are often or they are better writers than we often realize. They are purposeful with every detail in their accounts. They make decisions about what to put in and what to leave out. So if we come across something like this, we should pause and consider why it's there, because there's a reason why it's there. And as it happens, David being handsome makes quite an important point. Now, first, remember, David is unimpressive, okay? Now, he may have good looks, but people are not looking for good looks in a king. They don't want a pretty boy as king, okay? They want someone tall. They want someone with gravitas like Saul. David, by all worldly standards, is not that guy. However, what we see here is that although David isn't impressive, there is a genuine beauty to him. Despite being dismissed out of hand by pretty much everyone, There's something attractive about David. And here's the point. If Samuel had chosen who he thought should be king, he would have never seen David. David was beautiful, but that beauty would remain hidden as long as the attention was on other would-be kings. And the same is true with Jesus. He's beautiful too. Now, No doubt some of you might be shifting in your seats at the idea of me talking about Jesus as beautiful. might feel uncomfortable, awkward, and I understand that. And at one level, Jesus isn't described as being particularly good-looking in Scripture. If anything, quite the opposite. Isaiah 53, which famously speaks of the Messiah's death, describes the Messiah as having an appearance that wouldn't make any of us take notice of him. However... In the most profound sense, Jesus is the most beautiful being in existence. And to speak of him as such is biblical. So even David himself would write Psalm 27, he'd say these words, One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Isaiah would prophesy a day when future generations would see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. Jesus Christ exemplifies beauty. And we see the fullness of this beauty, not in his physical features, but when we gaze at him in the gospel. Jesus is the one who, despite being the king of all, came to earth and sacrificed himself for you. 
More than that, in the gospel, he has united himself to you so that all your sin and sorrow and mess he deals with and all his riches he shares with you. For better or for worse. He's the king who will even share his kingdom with you in the new creation once this world has passed. No matter how messed up we are, what other kings we run after, if you're a Christian and you trust in Jesus, he's bound to you. That's his decision. He doesn't regret it. Now, that the king of all would do that for us is beautiful. It's beautiful. Christian friend, how real is the beauty of Christ to you in this phase of your life? Even if you wouldn't use the language of beauty, a healthy Christian surely should feel their hearts being drawn towards Jesus. We should be able to see how wonderful he is and look at him and think, wow, you're amazing. You're amazing, Lord. And most of us know what that's like, even if we don't feel it all the time. Now, if that isn't real to you at the moment, there may be a number of reasons for that. But could it be that you've shifted your glance to other kings so that your eyes are not on the beauty of the Lord. Maybe you're looking at Eliab when David's actually around the corner and you've not seen him. Sometimes, I think as Christians, we slip into thinking of Jesus more like a dentist or a bank manager than a king. You know, someone who provides a really good service, but not quite someone we personally focus a lot of time on. You know, you might be really grateful for what your dentist does, but you don't tend to pay them much personal attention. Now, if your view of Jesus is like this, well, no wonder your hearts are running after other things. So if that's you, shift your gaze back to Jesus. Behold him as you read the pages of scripture. Meditate on what he has done for you and who he is for you even now, even today. Pray for the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see the glory of the anointed one for who he is. Jesus is beautiful. And hey, listen, even if you're struggling to see that, take heart that a part of his beauty is that he cares for you and loves you even though your heart is cold. As has once been said, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. The 17th century Scottish theologian Samuel Rutherford managed to capture in words so eloquently something of the beauty of Jesus. So just listen to this extract of a letter. I've slightly edited it so it's a bit easier to read. Oh, what an excellent, lovely one is Jesus. Put the beauty of 10,000 worlds of paradises like the Garden of Eden in one world. Put all the trees, all the flowers, all the colors, all the tastes, all the joys in one world. What a fair and excellent world that would be. And yet it would be less compared to Jesus than a drop of rain in the whole seas of a thousand earths. Oh, if I could invite thousands and thousands of people to flock about Jesus and take their fill of him. Oh, pity forevermore that so few take him. Oh, you poor souls, why do you not come with your emptiness to this huge, sweet, deep well of life? Why won't you come? The antidote to false kings is to be captivated by the true king. 
And when we see Jesus in his beauty, that will give us joy. And it will help us live for him, even though it might mean looking a little less impressive in the world's categories. We all choose a king. The question is, what if you're spending your life running after an Eliab when David is around the corner? What if you're spending your time focusing on what is most impressive, but ultimately will not save you? And what if the real king, the anointed king, the beautiful king, he is there and offering himself to you? Friend, whether you are a, not a Christian or whether you've been a Christian for many years, now you know it is time to come to the Lord Jesus. It's time to come to King Jesus. Ask for his forgiveness and receive his grace. By the world's standards, he is unlikely, but he is the one king able to save, and he is truly beautiful. Let's pray, shall we?